Again, that's Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14 on page 998. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce the ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The word of the Lord. All right. Good morning, guys. All right. Good morning, guys. That's better. Merry Christmas. It's awesome. Yeah, we get to celebrate Christmas this year. Um, I know for some of you, Christmas is uh, a time of, of celebration and joy because, well, you get to eat a lot of food and, and I don't know, drink eggnog and hang out with family and, and fun stuff like that. That's awesome. I know for some of you, Christmas is a hard time. Um, Christmas can be a time of great difficulty for people that are far from their family or are, for whatever reason, estranged. Sometimes family relationships can be incredibly difficult. Um, life circumstances can rob people of joy during this season. And so... Um, I want to let you know that uh, Merry Christmas to you as well, um, and I hope, honestly, that even the message this morning that I unpack will help you as you work your way through this season, because the things we're going to talk about really are really about finding joy in things that are, that are outside of our circumstances, finding joy in things that, that truly are ultimately worthwhile. Now, before I unpack and, and get into our sermon this morning, I want to let you know that, that last Sunday we took our first fruits offering. You guys, those of you who've been around for a while, know that we've started a capital campaign. We are at a unique crossroads of opportunity and challenge, and we um, feel like God is telling us to prepare and get ready for that. And so we've been casting vision for this. We set a goal of, of getting $550,000 pledged over three years from our church. Um, as I've already shared, man, we blew that out of the water. We, we have, at this point, um, around $670,000, $675,000 pledged over three years, which is incredible. And last Sunday, we took our first fruits offering, which was really kind of our, our kickoff to start setting money aside um, for our capital campaign. Um, last Sunday, we took in um, around $25,000 for our first fruit Sunday, which is awesome. It is our single largest offering. And um, that money is completely being set aside for the purpose of, of equipping this church to put down roots in this community so that ultimately we can grow in, in ministry and, and service to this community. And so I want to thank you for your generosity. Thank you for being involved. Um, if you were not here last Sunday and you still want to give your first fruits gift, we absolutely, you still can. We would love for you to do that. It'll still ultimately become part of that number, and that number becomes part of our church um, history, the legacy that we leave, which is awesome. All we need you to do is put it in an envelope and mark it first fruits or write it clearly on the memo line so that we know that it goes into that account. If you're new and, and you want to find out more about our capital campaign, find out about the opportunities in front of us, we have capital campaign booklets underneath the chairs at the end of each row. You can grab one, find out more about it. If you wanted to, to sit down and have a conversation, we'd be happy to talk to you about that. There are exciting things happening um, in our church, which really isn't surprising because we're following um, a fairly exciting Savior who makes things happen. So it's, it's, it's pretty cool. All right, we are in the final week of our Advent series. We spent the last four weeks digging into this passage, Titus 2, 11 through 14. I've encouraged you guys to actually memorize it and engage in it through the week. I hope many of you have and that you really have been blessed um, by doing that. Um, and we're going to dig this morning, really for last week into this, is, is looking into specifically how God restores our joy in our relationship with Him. Before I dig in, though, I was reading as I was studying, I came across a story of a woman who had been married for about 20 years, um, only to find out after 20 years, and this was, I mean, this is, uh, it, it seems um, kind of weird, but, but she was married to a Russian spy. She didn't know it. Um, and this is recent, right? So this is like totally, um, like this would be the stereotypical story, but it's it, it real. So she found out this, that, that this guy had married her. They'd been married for 20 years because he needed a cover. He needed a wife and he needed a family. And so he, it wasn't that he disliked her, but he needed to protect his cover, and so he was a good husband. He did the things he was supposed to do. He sacrificed for her. He, he, he laid down his life for her in some, some ways. He, he, he was a good, faithful, solid husband. And she finds out, after 20 years of marriage, that ultimately he was doing it for subversive motivations, that he was doing it because he needed to protect his cover, and that was something that was um, essential. Here's a question. Um, how would you feel? If you were the spouse that found that out, 
that you found out that your, your husband, your wife had been married to you for 20 years and that you thought you had a great marriage, but come to find out that all of the behavior had been motivated not purely by love for you or affection for you, but really by a need to protect a cover. Would you be like, that's all right with me? <laughs> I'm, I got a good deal here, right? Treats me well, takes me out to dinner, pays the bills. Um, let's just keep it up, huh? Is that ladies, that work for you? Yes. <laughs> Probably not. Now, maybe for short term, uh, especially as you panicked about what your life would look like. Um, but here's the deal, you guys. We don't want people's behavior. We think we do. We don't really want their behavior. What we want is their heart. You know what I'm saying? Like, like in a marriage, the heart of the marriage, what makes a marriage good is intimacy, love, trust. You take that out of the equation and all you leave is the behavior, you have an empty shell of a marriage. You have an empty shell of a relationship. When you take the intimacy and love out of the equation and all you leave is the proper behavior, that may be better than open warfare, but it is far from a satisfying, fulfilling, joy-filled relationship. What you have then is really just a business partnership. I'll treat you well so you treat me well and and I may not like you all the time, you may not like me, and I, might, I won't be motivated by, by love for you, but we'll treat each other well, right? And what you end up with, honestly, is a heart that will shrivel and die. We don't want just behavior. We want the heart behind it, right? We don't want just a gift. We want the gift to signify genuine affection and love. We don't want just the sacrifice. We want the sacrifice to in, indicate that, that you actually think I'm worth sacrificing for. We don't want the performance. We want the heart. And that's kind of the point that I'm getting at today, you guys. God wants us to be godly. It's going to be the word that we're kind of digging into. God wants us to be godly. But here's the thing. It's not so that we'll perform for Him, but so that we'll love Him. In fact, the heart of godliness is not about right behavior at all. It's about right affections. God wants us to love Him because He is infinitely lovely. If we love God will do the right things. In the same way, if you love your spouse or your kids or your friends, you will do the right things, right? You will serve them. You will express that affection to them. That's why when we're talking about our relationship with God, we're not talking about performance. We're talking about relationship. So that's kind of what we're going to dig into. Before I dig into it, I want to review a little bit so that we have the context of our verses, okay? We've been talking a lot over the last four weeks about the story arc of Scripture, the big picture of Advent. We're talking about Christmas, Christmas is one event that, that plays a critical role in a bigger story. And so when you look at the story of Advent, what you see is that there are, in fact, um, six acts to the story. If you want to talk about the, the true story of history, right, this is, this is a summary of the big picture of where we've been and where we're going, okay? And those six acts are broken down into to, uh, these six symbols uh, for the purpose of helping them be memorable. You've seen them for the last four weeks. I'm, I'm hoping that you could on a napkin just redraw them, right, so that it's something that becomes um, very familiar to you. Those six symbols represent creation, rebellion, promise, redemption, mission, and restoration. And in that, you see the whole story arc of human history, right? So in the, in the first one, creation, we were created by God. God created us not because He was lonely or He needed us, but because there was so much good in Him. He wanted a creation to pour that good out into. He wanted to create mankind in His own image so that they could love Him and enjoy Him. They could be centered on His glory and get the overflow of His joy. There was so much good in God, He simply wanted it to overflow into a good creation. And in that stage of the game, it was a good creation. It was marked by what, what theologians call the, the shalom of God. Shalom is a Hebrew word that, that means peace, but it's way more than just a lack of conflict. It is, it is balance and harmony and life. When we talk about the shalom of God, we're talking about uh, all the things that, that not only give life, but make life worth living. The glorious hum of the entire created universe. Everything worked as it was supposed to work. Everything was centered on the glory of God and lived in the overflow of His joy, right? The problem was in stage two, we see mankind rebelling against God. Mankind looked at God and said, you will no longer be the center. We will be the center. Your glory is no longer most important. Our glory is most important. We won't live for your kingdom. We will live for our kingdom. We will be equal to God. We will be um, our masters. 
So we reject the authority of God and the presence of God. And in so doing, we lose the shalom of God. We knocked the entire created order off axis. And as a result, every relationship was affected by the loss of shalom. Our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with others, our relationship with with God, our relationship with created order. You see a loss of shalom, a loss of peace, a loss of balance, a loss of of, of life-giving union in that. It was a dear price to pay for a rebellion against God. And it plunged us into a life where, honestly, our passions, which were created by God for God, are now redirected to things that aren't God. We're continually looking to things that aren't God to be God for us, to do for us what only God can do. That deep need for God is simply redirected to things that aren't God and can never satisfy. And that's the story of human history. And honestly, if you look at your life, that's probably the story of your life. Continually looking to things that cannot fully satisfy to satisfy. Constantly trying to anchor your identity in things that simply cannot anchor your identity. But God didn't leave us in that hell. He promised a Savior, and that's the next stage of the story. Right there in Genesis 3, in the story of the rebellion, God promises that He will send a seed of the woman, a son of the woman. And that son would crush the enemy's head, even though the enemy would bruise his heel. And through the Old Testament, we see that there is a reiteration of that promise over and over and over, and a narrowing of that promise until we actually see the coming of Christ, the hero of the story, the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head, even though the serpent would bruise his heel. We call that the first advent, the first breaking into human history, when God broke into human history by taking on human form, by taking on flesh and blood and living a human life, a sinless human life, and then dying a sinner's death so that sinners could be forgiven and rising in new life so that, um, to prove and to invite us into the new life that, that He has won for us. So that's redemption, right? That the hero comes and He wins redemption for us. That advent is, is right there in verse 11 where it says, for the grace of God has appeared. Right? That's that, that appearing, that breaking in, that advent is the birth of Christ, Christmas, right? The grace of God has broken in in the person of Christ, the Redeemer. And that promises a second advent because when Jesus left, he didn't just leave. He said, look, I'm leaving, but I'm coming back again. I'm going to come and I will restore all things to the way they were meant to be. Once again, the shalom of God will define the creation of God because the glory of God will be at the center. I will come and I will return. And we see that longing in verse 13 where it says, we are waiting for our blessed hope, eagerly anticipating our blessed hope, the fulfillment of The blessed hope, it is a hope that's pregnant with every other hope. It is the hope that promises to fulfill every desire. And it's the appearing of our great God and Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. So so He came once to redeem. He will come again to restore. In between those two advents is where we live our lives. It's our chapter of the story, and it's the chapter of mission. God is on mission to restore all things, and that means restoring us. And so God's on mission, so we're on mission. We're on mission to go deep in the gospel, to grow in the gospel as followers of Christ, and to share the gospel with others who desperately need to hear it so they also can enter into their story of redemption and restoration. Verse 12 of our chapter, uh, of our section, unpacks this. And so I'm going to put this up here. Verse 12 says, For the grace of God, remember that's the appearing, the breaking in. It's Christmas, right? For the grace of God is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, right? He doesn't want to make us passionless. He wants to redirect our passions to the things that truly fulfill. Instead of empty worldly passions, He wants us to have genuine godly passions, right? So we actually desire things that give life instead of rob it. To live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Self-controlled speaks of God restoring the shalom to our relationship with ourselves. He's freeing us. So we're no longer enslaved to our lusts. We're no longer enslaved to, the, to our desires that would simply lead us, right? We're no longer following the carrot of our desire wherever it leads us, thinking somehow that leads us to freedom when it actually leads us into greater slavery. He, he frees us to self-controlled lives. He frees us in our relationships with one another. So we're not low-down users of one another. We are upright in our relationship with others. We actually see in them the image of God and we value that image, and we love them because God loves us and frees us to love them. So we no longer use people to build ourselves up. We no longer compete with people. We can actually be in community with people. And the final thing we want to talk about is this last piece, that God wants us to live godly lives, that He wants to train us to renounce 
what is robbing us of the ability to live godly lives, and to free us into living godly lives in this present age. God wants us to be godly. Um, Before I dig into this, I just want to ask a question. If I were to ask you, and I know it would be weird, but I'm a pastor, so that's okay. But if I were to ask you, hey, how are you doing with your godly life? How would you respond? Anybody in here feeling particularly godly? Like, yeah, I'm godly. That's me, right? Godly, those words, godly, holy. I don't know about you, but every time I read them, there's something in me that feels condemned. There's something in me that feels like I just don't measure up, right? I mean, honestly, I know. Like, I get up here, and, and you guys, well, you're pastor, dude. Of course you're godly, right? You, you look at me, and like, you're like, dude, you even wear a tie today, right? You clean up pretty good. Like, I put an image on that, 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 that is, is my outward appearance. We all do that. But I know my heart. I know how much I struggled this week to want God. I know how much I struggled this week to actually engage this text and say, not only can I preach it, but can I live it? I know (laughs) how dark my heart is. And I have a feeling you know how dark yours is too. You know where your weaknesses are. You know where your flaws are. You may try to hide them. You may try and deceive yourself. You may try to downplay them. But when the true light of God's holiness is turned on, you see it. And I don't know about you, but in that moment, I feel like, no. I'm not godly. I'm not holy. I'm I'm not. I feel condemned. Here's the thing. If you're a follower of Jesus, and by follower I mean if you've believed in Christ, if you have trusted in Christ, and I'll unpack that a little more as we go through, here's the answer. The answer is you are godly regardless of how you feel. In fact, you are godly regardless of how you behave which seems like an ironic or nonsensical answer. Here's the deal. As a follower of Christ, and I'm going to unpack this, you are godly because Christ is godly and you're covered in Christ. And you're becoming godly because God will change you into what He's already declared you to be. So you're already godly because God has said you're covered in Christ and He will change you to become godly in practice and experience because that's what you already are in Christ. It's an essential that we get this. What we're talking about is the already, not yet tension. We live between the two advents, the coming of Christ and the return of Christ. And because of that, we live in an already, not yet tension. Christ has already come, but He has not yet fully restored all things. He has already won the battle, but He has not yet claimed the field. He has already uh, done everything He needs to solve life's greatest problem, our sin, but He has not yet fully delivered us into the power of being fully delivered from our sin, right? It's already, not yet. It's already accomplished, not yet fulfilled. That's the era in which we live. And and so it's not surprising that we struggle with things like godliness because there's an already, not yet tension to it. It is a progress in our lives. So I want to unpack this a little bit. If you believe in Jesus, you are already godly by God's grace. See, this is the beauty of the gospel. This is what makes Christianity different from all other world religions. Every other world religion essentially is advice on how to bridge the gap between you and God. It's, it's the message of this is how you fix yourself. This is how you change yourself. This is how you become more religious and less sinful. This is how you start doing the right things and stop doing the wrong things. But Christianity is not a message of advice. It is a message of news. It's not advice on how you reach God. It is news on how God has reached you. The whole point of the gospel is that Jesus lived the life you were supposed to live, and Jesus died the death you deserve to die. He lived a sinless life, and He died a sinner's death in your place as your substitute so that you could be forgiven. And when He rose again from the dead, He did it in His victory, but He also did it in victory for all those that would simply trust, believe in Him. Take a look at verses, uh, chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. Same book, right there on page 998, right here in Titus, because Titus unpacks this very idea down in chapter 3, starting in verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, there's that word appeared, that's Advent. When did it appear? The birth of Christ. 
the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, right? So the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, broke into this world. He saved us. He delivered us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His, by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Two key words in this passage, mercy and grace. Mercy and grace. He begins by saying in verse 5, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. In verse 7, He says, So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Mercy is when we don't get what we deserve. You deserve judgment. Mercy is you don't get judgment. God exercised mercy by instead of giving us the judgment we deserved, He gave it to His Son. He put our judgment on Christ, our substitute. He took our sin of cosmic treason, rebellion against God, and put it on Christ. Such a significant thing that that Paul says in in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that he who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin for us on the cross, judged, crushed, punished in our place so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Mercy. God doesn't give us what we deserve. He instead gives it to His Son. Out of mercy flows grace. See, mercy is is God not giving us what we deserve. Grace is when God does give us what we don't deserve. So not only did God mercifully take our sin and put it on Christ, in grace He took Christ's righteousness and put it on us. He covered us with the very righteousness of Christ. According to our text, He justified us. It's a technical term that means to declare right. God, the sovereign judge of the universe, looked at you, a sinner, and said, you are right. You are justified. You are clean. You are godly. You are holy. Not because of works you've done in righteousness. That's what it said in verse 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. Not, not by your works, but by His. Not by your record, but by His. You are godly, in the sight of God, declared right. Not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done for you. This is why religion ultimately makes no sense. See, religion says... You need to improve yourself for God to like you. You need to fix yourself for God to approve of you. You need to labor so that God will somehow be impressed with you. If you do enough good works, if you stop doing enough bad works, then maybe somehow you'll tilt the cosmic scales in your favor and God will come out on on this side saying, yeah, yeah, I like you better. Well, see, the problem is that completely underestimates the gravity of our offense. Scripture says in, in Ephesians that we are, in fact, dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead in our trespasses and sins. We, we completely separated from the life of God. We have rejected and lost the shalom of God. How foolish is it for us to think that we can restore the shalom of God by our good works? That we can restore ourselves to life as those who are dead? It's a problem we can't fix. It is something that is well beyond our ability. I've used this illustration numerous times, and um, some of you don't like it, and that's okay. It's kind of gross, but I like it, um, and so I use it often. Um, I had a friend that um, was driving home, and uh, as he was driving into his neighborhood, he, he picked up an odor that was just absolutely horrendous, um, didn't know what it was. To his horror, the closer he got to his home, the stronger the odor became, until he pulled into his driveway and op- actually opened his front door, and he realized that the odor was emanating from his own home. It was an odor of raw sewage overwhelmingly putrid, right? Just an absolute stench. So he's looking through his house, wondering what in the world, finally walks through the house to the far side, opens up his basement door, looks down the steps, flips on the light, and there, kind of undulating with the light reflecting off the surface, is about six inches of raw sewage. 
covering the entire basement. He had just finished the basement. The kids' bedrooms were down there. The kids' play area was down there. Um, and, and floating in this raw sewage are toys. At the bottom of the steps is one specific toy. It is an electronic toy. It is a Bob the Builder toy. It is short-circuiting in the floating sewage, and it's sitting there flashing lights and being all bubbly, saying over and over again, can we fix it? Yes, we can. I can't make this stuff up. I mean, this really, this was, it's sitting down there mocking him, right? The toys are mocking him, right? As he's sitting there in raw horror, looking at the reality of the situation, can we fix it? Yes, we can. Shut up, right? I mean, it's like, kill the toy. Here's the thing, you guys. I really think that's the way God sees us when we try to clean ourselves up, when we try to fix ourselves, when we try to get our act together somehow that, we, you know, I got to get religion. I got I to, my life's a mess, man. I got I to gotta, I gotta stop doing these things. I got to start doing these things. I got to, you know, you're a corpse floating in the cesspool of your own unrighteousness. That's what scripture says. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. You're dead. And you think by cleaning a little smudge under your eye, somehow that's going to make you less dead? You're floating face down in a pool of your own unrighteousness. You need a savior. You don't need a fix. You need somebody who's going to bring you back to life. You don't, you don't, you don't need just like a, a, you know, something to dab. and You need a complete renewal. And that's what Christ offers. He is a Savior. He, who knew no sin, became sin for us. So fully identified with us in our trespasses that He immersed Himself in the cesspool of our unrighteousness, our rebellion against God, our cosmic treason. And God poured out His righteous wrath on His Son in our place. And when God's wrath was utterly, completely satisfied, Jesus rose from the dead, proving that the payment was complete. And he invites you into that record. He invites you to have your sins completely removed and placed on Christ and his righteousness placed on you. Mercy, not getting what you deserve, grace, getting what you don't deserve. You guys, that is the message of Christmas. That's the message of the first advent. It is a story of grace. It is the grace of God breaking into human history, saying to you, you were helpless. You were, in fact, a rebel repugnant in your sins, but I have not been repelled. I love you. Not because you deserved it. Because I choose to. And whom I love, I make beautiful. Whom I love, I cleanse and make alive. God loves you. And all He asks from you, honestly, is a response of faith. He wants you to be humble enough to stop trying to fix yourself. He wants you to be humble enough to stop, you know, thinking that, that well, I can, I can do Christ's job for Him and save myself. I can be God and restore shalom to my own life. I can be God and restore life to my own life. I can be, once again, the center. God doesn't have to be. What he's doing is inviting you to reverse what was done in the rebellion. To once again have God's glory at the center instead of yours. To allow his work to be preeminent and for you to rest in his work as the one who did for you what you couldn't do for yourself. To be humble enough to recognize and to admit, I need a savior and be so moved in faith to trust that God gave you one. That you might be cleansed, that you might be forgiven, that you might have new life When you believe in Christ, his record is yours and your record is his. Your shame is no longer your own. Your rebellion is no longer on your record. You are declared right by the sovereign God and judge of the universe. You are godly. Now, here's the thing. As a follower of Christ, that's your position before God because he's declared it to be, but it's not your experience before God because you have to grow into it. What God has declared to be, we have to work hard to experience in this life. That's the cooperative effort of of experiencing more of what God's already given us, right? That's the, the already not yet tension that we live between. It's already true of us. You can't lose it. You can't earn it. But it's not yet fully experienced by us. 
We need to grow in our experience of it. We need to become more like Christ. And that's kind of the catch. Because a lot of times, that's where the pain point comes in. I know what God has declared me to be, but I'm having a really hard time experiencing what I know to be true. Well, here's the thing. God wants to make your standing before Him your experience before Him. He has blessed you with the righteousness of Christ, and He wants to free you into a deeper, more powerful um, experience of that blessing. And, and this is what we're going to need to catch, you guys. This isn't about God changing what we do. It's about Him changing what we love. He doesn't want us like, oh man, you were saved by my love, now go perform for me. Go do the right things for me. Go start putting the right acts. And what He's saying is, I, I won you with my love, now I want you to love me. I have poured out my love to you. I want you to respond in love to me as the one who is infinitely lovable. And as we grow in our love for God, it will change our behavior, right? It's not about changing what we do. It's about changing what we love because God wants you to love Him. He wants you to want Him. He wants you to delight in Him as the one who is truly lovable and truly delightful. He is the source of all that we call beautiful. All that we look at is valuable. All that we find pleasurable. He is the source. How silly it is for, how silly it is for us to look at the things He's created instead of the one who created them. And say to those things, you will be my God. You will deeply and most uh, fully fulfill me. He wants us to delight in His glory, which means that He wants us to come to love what He commands. He wants us to come to love what He commands. Here's the challenge, you guys. If we're going to come to love what He commands instead of resent it, we're going to have to learn to hear the tone of His voice and not just the command of His voice. We need to hear the tone, which is a tone of love and invitation. Because what He commands is, is not to perform, but to love. What He commands is, in fact, an expression of His love because He wants to free us, not enslave us. God wants to tell a better story for our lives than we would tell for ourselves. We have to trust Him that that is, in fact, true. And it requires us to hear the love and respond to it. I don't know if you guys have ever been on a team where you had a great coach. I did. I was on a football team, and, and I had a great coach, and I was a punk, and I was, like, young and, and only mildly coordinated, and, um, but I like to hit things. And so I would just get out there and hit things, and he was trying to help me, to direct me, and to, well, he was one of these coaches. You know, he's not coming alongside you, and, oh, you're doing a great job, man. Let me encourage you. Sandwich encouragement, right? You're doing great, but you're going to prove this, but you're doing great, right? That's not the way the coach works. The coach is like, Mizell, get your butt down when you're in your three-point stance. Dude, down. Come on, hit. Drive, drive, drive. Like he's just barking commands. You know why I like to listen to him? Because I know he's for me. I know that what he is coaching me to do is the very thing I ultimately want to do. And as he is commanding me, I know that there is a love behind the command. This was a coach that actually cared for me. He wanted me to see me succeed, not, not because he was worried about the record of the football team. That was important, but he was actually worried about me. As a troubled teenager, he wanted to see me engaged and moving toward healthy behavior. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's a love behind the command, and that allowed me to respond to the command instead of rebel against it. If all I heard was the command, there's no way I would have stayed on that team. There's no way I would have simply willfully submitted myself to some guy that was barking at me and telling me what to do all the time. I respond to the love, not the command. We need to hear the, the love in the commands of God. It's like a good parent. When you, when you have a good parent, a mom or a dad, they're going to say hard things to you. They're going to challenge you, but you know that what they're challenging you to do is, is, in fact, for your best interest, out of their love for you. They want to see you grow. And me, you growing means they're going to have to help you work through difficult things, make hard choices. Some of you have had parents like that, and you look back, and there were times when you absolutely resented their authority, but you're very thankful that they exercised that authority for your good, to protect you in key times when you needed protection. See, we need to love 
God. That means that we need to come to love the grace of God in order to come to love the glory of God. We do not naturally love the glory of God. You know why? Because we rejected the glory of God. Genesis chapter (laughs) 3. I don't want your glory, I want my own. I don't want your story, I want my own. We do not naturally gravitate toward the glory of God and say, yeah, I love the glory of God. Because we don't. We love our own glory. We love our own lives. We love our own authority. We love our own stories. The glory of God is threatening to our glory because it, it, can, it can supplant it and change it. He has the authority to tell us what to do. We don't like that. So the glory of God is threatening to us. In fact, outside of Christ, the glory of God is the most threatening thing in the universe because it condemns us as sinners. And like fire consuming dry kindling, if you come into the presence of God without a Savior, you'll be judged. The glory of God is threatening and alien to us because it commands us. The glory of God is the very thing you were created to revolve around. The glory of God is the very thing that will give you life. But for you to come to love the glory of God, you have to come to love the grace of God because it's only grace that will change your hearts to love glory. It is only grace that will change your heart so that you will come to hear God's authority is God's invitation. God's command is God's love. And this is why we need to fill our vision with the Advent, with Christmas, with the coming of Christ. This is why we need to fill our vision with the demonstration of God's love. Because as we fill our vision with how much we've been loved, it is going to produce within us a love and response. And as grace changes our hearts to love God, it will also change our hearts to come to love the glory of God. Think about it this way, you guys. Think about it like an appetizer. Grace works for glory the same way a good appetizer works for a meal. I'm not talking about Applebee's. You ever had an appetizer at Applebee's? Anybody walk away from an appetizer at Applebee's saying, I am, in fact, more hungry than when I, be- when I came? Anybody? Right? You get like the chicken nachos or whatever. You consume that monstrosity, and by the time you're done, you're looking at the salad going, I think I'm going to die. I can't eat anymore, Right? A good appetizer is not about the volume of food. It's about the quality. If you go to a good restaurant, they will, in fact, give you an appetizer that whets your appetite for the meal. The appetizer is actually paired with the meal so that when you eat it, what it does is it takes your appetite and actually directs it toward the fulfillment of that appetite in the meal itself. A good appetizer is not about volume. It's about quality. It changes our appetite. It directs our appetite. That's what grace does. Grace directs our appetite to what is truly fulfilling. Grace directs our appetite to what will ultimately meet our needs. It changes us from looking to things that aren't God to actually looking to God. Instead of trying to establish our own glory, we come to crave God's glory. We, we actually start desiring what is worth our desire and worshiping what is worth our worship. What that means is as you come to fill your vision with Christ, you will come to love Christ and submission to Him will in fact become a joy instead of a burden. You'll come to love Him as Savior. And as you fall in love with Jesus as Savior, you will come to love Him as Lord. But the only way we'll learn to submit is to renew our love. You know why? Because submitting always involves pain. Because when God realigns our desires, it always hurts. It always hurts. Because what you do is you look to things to meet your needs. You look to a relationship or an activity, a pleasure, a success, an affirmation, an approval. You look to something to do for you what what God is supposed to do. And you've got a death grip on that thing because you're looking to that thing to, in fact, be life to you. And when God comes to you and says, you need to release that thing, I will fulfill that need. You have to trust Him. The only way you'll release your grip on your idols is if you come to see the beauty of God. And as you come to see the beauty of God as manifest in grace, it will teach you to release. Now, it's still going to hurt. You know why? Because it's going to feel, every time you you have to give up something that you're looking to for life, it's going to feel like a death. 
Every time you, you have to give up something, you're like, I've been looking to this as, as my identity, whether it's, it's sex, achievement at work, um, some pleasure, whatever it is. And God says, look, you're going to stop looking to that thing to meet your deepest desires. You're going to turn to me instead and, and trust that I'm going to be more fulfilling. I'm going to meet you in ways that thing never could. As you release it, it feels like death but its gap is filled with life, right? There's a transitional pain. And the more you experience that transition, the more you realize how trustworthy He is, that He does meet you in ways that that thing never could, or that person never could, or that relationship never could, or that sin never could. You will, you will recognize that God actually does fulfill you in ways that those things never could. And that, in fact, encourages our onward path, right? Because this is, this is the story of the not yet the already not yet tension. It's about us becoming more and more of what we've already been declared to be, which means us repenting and leaving our idols behind and, and turning to God for life and, and, and learning to live in submission to Him, right? It is grace that retrains us for glory. When you get this, then you start realizing how, how, how stupid, really, white-knuckle religion is, right? White-knuckle religion simply says, I will change for God. I will stop doing this bad thing. I will stop feeling bad. I will stop being anxious. I will stop. So you just put yourself into it as if it's a problem you could fix. Instead of trusting the one who can fix it. The fundamental difference is this. Religion is about working for God's approval. The gospel is about working from it. Religion says you need to work really hard so that God will like you, and, and I better do that because I'm afraid He won't. The gospel says you, you already have everything in Christ. Root yourself deeply in that love, and that love will change you. It'll change your heart and your heart's affections. And as your heart and heart's affections are changed, your behavior will be transformed. It won't simply be about conformity to a set of rules. It'll be about transformation of your heart. Only grace can retrain our affections. And that's why our text says in chapter 11, for it is the grace of God, verse 12, that is training us to renounce ungodliness. It is the grace of God that is training us, that is changing us, redirecting our affections. Now, here's the deal, you guys. Grace isn't just an idea, it's a person. We're not talking about simply an abstract. We're talking about God in the flesh, Jesus, the grace of God in flesh and blood. God whom we have never seen becoming man so that we can see Him and relate to Him and understand Him. So as I wrap up, what I want to do is refocus our vision on Jesus. I simply want to focus on what Christmas is really about. Because I think as we fill our vision with that, man, it frees us in beautiful ways. So in order to do that, I'm going to flip over to John 1. It's actually my favorite Advent passage. It's not the typical one. It doesn't tell the story of the wise men or the travel or the, any of that. But it is a uh, beautiful exploration of the advent of Christ. John's the most poetic of the New Testament writers, in my opinion. Loves metaphor, loves poetry, and you can just pick it up in his language. And in, and in John chapter 1, he's actually writing in a way that compares Genesis 1 with the advent. So creation with the recreation. Okay, and you can see that right in the first word. It says, in the beginning was the word. Genesis 1 says, in the beginning God created. So there's this parallel of creation and recreation. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. What's all this word stuff? Well, the word for word is an interesting word. Um, it's uh, the Greek word logos, which means a thought or an expression. The idea here is that Jesus is the perfect expression of God. He's the, he is the thought of God expressed in flesh and blood. He is the perfect expression of who God is. And in fact, we know it's Jesus because in verse 14 it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Christmas, the advent, right? The thought of God became part of the creation of God. Well, he was with God and he was God. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Think about the power. Jesus is the agency of creation. He is the power behind creation. 
There was nothing made that was made without the power of the Son. In fact, in verse 4, it says, In Him was life. When we talk about the shalom of God, the shalom of God is rooted in the very life of God. He is the source of all that is living. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. A poetic way of saying that the life of God is the very thing that gives nourishment, flourishing, growth, health. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Even though the world was plunged into rebellion, it had no way of overcoming the light of God's life. A single match has the power to dispel the greatest darkness. See, darkness has no power in and of itself. It is simply the absence of what is good. And God didn't leave us in the absence of what is good. The light broke into our darkness. The true life, light in verse 9, which enlightens everyone, was coming or broke into the world. He was in the world. And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 16. And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The fullness of God and helpless babe. The fullness of the Creator in such a frail creation. And from Him we have received wave after wave after wave of grace. Undeserved favor on top of undeserved favor on top of undeserved favor. An outpouring of all that is good. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. As we think about Christmas and we think about Advent, it is a profound mystery of God's love demonstrated in God Himself becoming man. And it sets us longing not for an event, but for a person. The appearing, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Isaiah 7.14 says this, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call His name Emmanuel. The most important part about this verse isn't the virgin part, although there's theological importance there. The most important part about that verse is that name, Emmanuel. You're like, well, wait a minute, I thought his name was Jesus. It was. The importance of the name isn't the name itself, it's the meaning of the name. The word means God with us. God will send a Savior, and He will be unlike any child ever born. He will be Emmanuel. He will be God with us. He will be our great God and our great Savior, Jesus Christ. You guys, we're going to show a video to wrap up. The video is actually a, uh, a telling of a portion of, of a sermon given by a guy named Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon is considered one of the greatest preachers the world's ever known. And um, After that video, I'm going to ask our band to lead us in a worship song. And then we'll share communion after that. So we're changing up the end a little bit. Um, for those of you who, you're like, holy cow, Steve, don't change. we're going to change a little bit. It's going to be okay. Um, so I'm going to ask the, the band to come up. We're going to show the video. We'll sing a song, and then we'll share communion. reason cannot reach halfway into its depths. 
the eagle wings of science cannot fly so high, and the piercing eye of the vulture of research cannot see it. God with us. It is hell's terror. Satan trembles at the sound of it. His legions fly apace. The black-winged dragon of the pit quails before it. Let Satan come to you suddenly and do you but whisper the word, God with us, and back he falls, confounded and confused. Satan trembles when he hears that name. God with us. It is the laborer's strength. How could he preach the gospel? How could he bend his knees in prayer? How could the missionary go into foreign lands? How could the martyr stand at the stake? How could the confessor acknowledge his master? How could men labor if that one word were taken away? God with us is the sufferer's comfort is the balm of his woe, is the alleviation of his misery, is the sleep that God gives to his beloved, is the rest after exertion and toil. God with us is eternity's sonnet, is heaven's hallelujah, is the shout of the glorified, is the song of the redeemed, is the chorus of angels, and is the everlasting oratorio of the great orchestra of the sky.